This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics. For the full show and archives, visit jodcast.net. So, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Jonathan Pover, coming here from Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. I guess doing the research I'm about to talk about for close to a decade now, so excited to share some progress with you. Awesome. So what is that research? Uh, so I'm in the field of what's called 21-centimeter cosmology. Basically, those two words put together, I want to do cosmology, study the origins, the evolution of the universe, and I'm doing it through the 21-centimeter line, which is a spectral line associated with neutral hydrogen. In short, I'm trying to map out all of the hydrogen gas in the entire universe and understand how it's evolved over cosmic time. Cool. So uh, for a quick introduction, what is the 21-centimeter line? So a 21-centimeter line is an atomic transition associated with a neutral hydrogen atom. Very small energy difference that comes from the proton and the electron being either aligned or anti-aligned. In terms of their spin. In terms of their spin, that's right. And most hydrogen atoms will never undergo a 21-centimeter transition, but there are so many hydrogen atoms in the universe that we can observe what the hydrogen is doing by mapping out the 21-centimeter line. So the 21 centimeters refers to the wavelength of the line then? That's right. So that's in the radio regime? That's right. It's in the radio. And because I'm trying to do cosmology, study the history of the universe, I'm looking at a time when the universe was smaller than today. And so the expansion between when a hydrogen atom early in the universe emitted a 21 centimeter line and when we observe it now, the expansion of the universe has stretched that line uh, typically for the regimes that I'm interested in by something like a factor of 10. So we're down at two meter wavelength, which is... In terms of frequency, very close to FM radio, digital TV, airplane transmission. So we're, we're dab smack in the middle of where humans love to broadcast. So there's lots and lots of foreground interference you need to sort out and work through. That's right. Yeah, human-generated emission is a major problem for us. So the two experiments I work on are in the Karoo Desert in South Africa and mm. Western Australia at the Murchison site. So these are both future sites for the SKA. Sure. Yeah, we're not quite as lucky here in um, Cheshire with a level telescope. It's pretty close to Manchester. Yeah. So, so what, what telescopes do you work with then? Uh, so the two experiments that are currently operational, there's the MWA, the Murchison Wide Field Array that's in Western Australia, mm-hmm. and the Hydrogen Epic of Reionization Array, or HERA, and that's under construction right now in South Africa. Decent acronyms. Yeah, <laughs> we've had worse. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, how can this redshift tell us about the universe's cosmology then? So when we see a 21-centimeter photon that is not at a wavelength of 21 centimeters, but rather, say, at a wavelength of 2 meters, Mm -hmm. we can figure out exactly when in cosmic history it was emitted, attributing that shift in wavelength to the expansion of the universe. So it gives you a time of emission. That's right. And so if we build a telescope that's sensitive to a large band of wavelengths, we can map out a lot of cosmic history with the same instrument. Yeah, so these things are really faint. Then. Is there sort of any real-life comparison for how faint they're going to be, just to give some listeners a context? Um, so a calculation I o- often do is a typical radio source. So the thing that most radio astronomers are studying with radio telescopes is something like a cell phone on the moon. That's about right, yeah. Uh, and that's about five orders of magnitude stronger than the signal I'm looking for. And how, then, do you separate them from the foreground emission? I guess that's been the majority of your work. That is the number one challenge in our field, that there's all sorts of other astrophysical radio emission. Even if we go to these radio quiet sites to get away from human-generated emission, we can't get away from other astrophysical processes that emit at these wavelengths. And so they swamp our signals by about five orders of magnitude. And 
separating them has been the challenge that I've been working on for the last decade. The spectral behavior of these emission mechanisms is expected to be different. So as a function of wavelength, astrophysical foreground emission, the stuff that's getting in our way, it's pretty smooth. It doesn't look very different from wavelength to wavelength. Whereas our signal looks very different. Every wavelength is probing a different period in cosmic history, Mm -hmm. and so we're sampling a different portion of the universe. And if that were the end of the story, we'd have detected our signal by now. Um, Statistical techniques can let you extract a very faint signal that has a lot of spectral structure Mm -hmm. underneath a very strong background of smooth signals. We, We can do that in a simulation. The problem is we're observing these signals through radio telescopes, and particularly radio telescopes at meter wavelength that are built out of literally PVC pipe, chicken wire, and comp- copper plumber's tubing. These are not necessarily precision construction materials. Yeah, I think compared to some other telescopes people have seen, actual telescopes aren't always as uh, elegant. <laughs> yeah, and so modeling the response of our telescope to that one part in 10 to the 5, that five orders of magnitude difference between our signal and our foreground, so that we can separate them, is the challenge right now. How do we actually model our telescope so we can remove its effects mm-hmm. from our data and then cleanly separate the foregrounds and the signal. Wow. So what kind of methods do you use other than statistical methods which you mentioned? Uh, so there's a lot of different techniques that we're currently exploring. And so the name of the game is generally called calibration. It's the idea of getting the response of your telescope out over time that you know our, we're sensitive to temperature variations in the electronics of our telescope mm-hmm. as they heat up over the day and cool down at night our telescope changes at the level that we care about and mm. so, so you model those changes as well um we would love to be able to model those changes basically we have our data mm. and we have to use our data to both constrain the sky that is not known and constrain the response of the telescope at a level that is not known. So separating the two things is the, is the challenging part. Then. And so, yeah, getting a model of your telescope that doesn't accidentally model some of your data out or move signals from your data that are actually astrophysical is really a lot, a lot of the work that we're doing right now, trying to explore how to do that and come up with new techniques for calibration mm-hmm. and you know, new ways to ensure the problems that we're very worried about don't affect us. Well, like, what kind of new ways have you discovered? So typically the way a radio telescope is calibrated is you point it at a well-studied radio source and you say, I know what this source looks like. I'm getting this data. Therefore, I sort of have a mapping function from the true properties of the source to your data. Mm-hmm. Our telescopes that are basically antennas on the ground, they don't point anywhere and they're sensitive to a huge area of the sky at once. So instead of being able to isolate one radio source that we know well, we have hundreds of thousands of sources all at one time that we don't know that well. And so building a better sky model, but also you know, having techniques that protect you against particular kinds of errors, the kind of errors that would prevent us extracting the signal, um, hasn't been a real question of interest for radio astronomy because they don't have these problems, mm-hmm. whereas these wide field of view telescopes do, and so we've had to develop a lot of techniques from scratch. That's really cool. So this is comparable to the sort of such like so working from the background in the CMB as well. So obviously you've got a really faint microwave signal there too, and you've got lots of galaxies in the Milky Way that emits it as well. So do you have the same kind of problems as that then? Yeah, I think in terms of that five orders of magnitude challenge that's very comparable to what people currently working on CMB polarization experiments looking mm-hmm. for 
uh, the B mode or gravitational wave background signal. We're sort of at the same regime as those experiments are. And we don't have a quiet spot on the sky. We can't just point away from the Milky Way galaxy and see our signals. Even at the quietest parts of the sky, we're still five orders of magnitude below the foreground. So So changing subject slightly, what kind of um, sources, well not sources, but what part of the universe are you particularly focusing on? So the first generation of these experiments are targeting what's known as the epoch of reionization, Mm -hmm. which is a period shortly after the first stars and galaxies formed in the universe. And actually when galaxies started mattering on a cosmic scale. And so we're looking for the light that came out of the first galaxies and fed back into the universe and Mm -hmm. energized and ionized all the hydrogen gas in the universe. Mm -hmm. So it's really a question of when did structure, galaxies, become important in cosmic history? Mm -hmm. And what were those first galaxies like? How were they different from modern galaxies? And how can we sort of bridge the gap between the CMB at the very beginning of the universe and all the galaxies we see now, it was kind of the middle period. Yeah. So we know about the CMB, and then there was the Dark Ages, and then we know about realization because we can observe it from this, and we try to work out what happened in between, right? That's right. Sort of not just the tail end of realization, but what started it, uh, what happened even before then, is often given the umbrella name of Cosmic Dawn, mm. the, the first light in the universe. Sure. So some of our listeners might not un- uh, know that much about um, early cosmology, so... There was the Big Bang, there was inflation, and then there was recombination, right? So you want to give a quick overview of what that was? Sure, yeah. I mean, in, in kind of the standard model of cosmology, the universe after the Big Bang was very, very hot and very, very dense. And that fact that it was very, very hot meant that all the hydrogen gas was ionized. Instead of having hydrogen atoms with a proton and an electron, you had a proton, and off somewhere else was the electron. It was just basically protons. And mm-hmm. so that ionized gas eventually recombines, we say, as the universe cools and forms the CMB and we're left with neutral hydrogen everywhere in the universe. Mm -hmm. And nothing really happens to that neutral hydrogen until eventually kind of the first stars start forming. They create a radiation background that reionizes that hydrogen gas. And that's the period that we're trying to study. But as I've said, we haven't done this science yet. So I've been trying to do this for 10 years. We've never detected the 21 centimeter signal. Mm-hmm. Um, we've kind of built a generation of experiments that the goal of which was to teach us how to build the next generation of experiments. And now mm-hmm. is when that next generation is coming online. Yeah. That we learned a tremendous amount over the last 10 years. I, I don't want to convey this as a oh, no. fruitless effort that, you know, we've just been stymied and not gotten anywhere. We've hopefully taught ourselves how to do this work. Yeah. And it's now is the time when all those lessons are going into effect, all these new facilities, so an upgraded MWA and HERA that I mentioned are coming online and starting to pour out data. And so it's an exciting time mm. that we are seeing all these experiments come to fruition and yeah. they can hopefully make a first detection of this signal and inform us about and what comes next, how to something like the square kilometer array really exploit observing the signal. I think yeah, I guess it's important to note this, like we've only had the technology to do this kind of thing quite recently compared to simple radio telescopes picking up pulsars back in the 50s. Like that's a much older field of observational astronomy compared to this, I guess. Yeah, and, and these low frequencies, it's interesting, this is kind of where radio astronomy began at mm. meter wavelength. And then with sort of the advent of computers and you know, faster signal processing, 
people move to shorter wavelengths mm-hmm. because of all the terrestrial interference, problems from the Earth's ionosphere. The sky just gets much cleaner mm-hmm. up at sort of centimeter wavelengths. And if the science, if this cosmology with 21 centimeter line hadn't emerged as a compelling science case, mm-hmm. no one would have volunteered to go back and observe at meter wavelengths. To willfully observe at the worst um. possible. <laughs> so why not build a telescope in space then? Is just the size you need makes it unfeasible. So it's something we're very actively talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, probably the best place in the solar system to do this would be on the far side of the moon. Okay. There's no ionosphere, so no atmosphere to bother you, and you're shielded from the Earth's radiation. And, and the sun's, I imagine, has some impact on that as well. Yeah, the sun is a horrible, horrible radio source at these <laughs> wavelengths. And you know, I think the size that you would need to build gets pretty prohibitive. Yeah. Um, but if the science is there, it's not out of the question. One of the things you can do from the moon that you can't do from the earth is go after very high redshifts, mm. where the ionosphere goes from being a nuisance to being an opaque wall. So something like redshift 100 where we're at sort of 15 megahertz, you can't observe from Earth. But you can observe from space and potentially you know, study cosmology before the birth of the first stars and get real clean cosmological signal, much like the CMB, and improve those kind of constraints. So we're, we're, we're talking about it. I think <laughs> NASA in the United States five years ago declared such a concept as, as visionary, Mm. Which meant, That's always a good one to be labeled, um, I think. That was sort of their 30-year time scale. Yeah. Uh, 2043 seems a little optimistic right now. I think you know, part of the issue is in, until the ground-based experiments that we're working on now really confirm that you can do this and we mm. vet the techniques and we vet the telescope designs to enable 21-centimeter cosmology, probably don't want to spend billions of dollars putting something on the moon. Maybe not. Until you feel pretty confident it's going to work. Yeah. Uh, but it's definitely a long very long-term goal for us. So even the SKA would be too high frequency for you to use? So the low-frequency part of the SKA overlaps with these epic of randomization frequencies quite a bit. And so certainly mapping out neutral hydrogen is a major science driver for the low-frequency SKA. For kind of that high redshift signal we were talking about, uh, the calculations I've done say basically we need about five square kilometers (laughs) Five SKs. On the far side of the moon. Wow. So, yeah, a futuristic concept, but I said the science is quite exciting. That really gives some solid evidence for a current model of the universe, then, of early cosmology, at least. Uh, potentially, yeah. There, there's a treasure trove of information out there in the 21 centimeter signal. We just have to get the techniques and the technology to get to it. Mm-hmm. So in your abstract, you mentioned some um, major setbacks. And, oh, oh, importantly, overcoming those setbacks, yeah. I should say. So, so yeah, and, and over the last couple of years, you know, these first generation of experiments released, you're saying we're upper limits on the 21 centimeter signal. We're saying we didn't detect it, but the fact that we didn't detect it meant it couldn't have been brighter than some value. And that fits your predicted theories then? And yeah, some of the most extreme theories that predicted extremely bright signal values were getting ruled out. Mm-hmm. And so those upper limits became scientifically interesting, but... A lot of what was published was not correct, that our data analysis techniques were uh, removing 21-centimeter signal uh-huh. without us knowing it. So we gave it the name signal loss, that you know, we took out a huge fraction of the 21-centimeter signal, and so that upper limit, saying it wasn't brighter than value X, wasn't robust, because 
we took out a lot of the signal. We didn't appreciate it. And so the last year really has seen several papers retracting those upper limits, explaining what went wrong in the analysis, why we didn't catch that in the analysis, and what we can do in the future to avoid those kind of setbacks again. So certainly a learning experience, Mm -hmm. but we're perhaps it seems further away from our goal than it seemed two years ago when in truth we're closer, but two years ago there was a lot of excitement that we really had these techniques figured out and we were making steady progress towards Mm -hmm. getting to fainter and fainter signals. And that just wasn't true. It's good to overcoming them and actually like progressing forward then. Um, yeah. So you talk about the characterization of the signals, characterization of these signals. So what exactly do you mean by characterization? So, I mean, I think the, the detailed properties of the 21 centimeter signal hmm. tells us science. Right? What we want to know to begin with is a first detection. Can we actually see it? Uh, but then, uh, the properties of the signal is a function of scale on the sky tells us about the underlying galaxies that are driving ionization, whether it was more massive galaxies, were the first galaxies very, very small and not very massive? Uh, what was their spectra? Did they have different types of stars than modern galaxies? Mm-hmm. And these are all observationally, essentially unconstrained questions. And so that information is all encoded in the 21 centimeter signal, uh, but it means we need to recover it with high fidelity. And then we need to model all the physics that go into making the 21 centimeter mm-hmm. signal so we can extract that physics out from it again. Yeah. Uh, so right, right now, you know, again, our, we're, we're really working towards the first detection, but and hopefully a couple of years we'll have one, and then we'll have good measurements of the signal. And then we need techniques for how do we go from these measurements back to the astrophysics. So would it be similar to the work on the CMB there? Because that's talking about observing structure of different scales. That's right. So we're looking at a very similar observable called the power spectrum. That's mm-hmm. you know, fluctuations in the signal on various scales in the universe. Where... Things get different from the CMB is the CMB is beautifully modeled by six numbers. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe you can throw in a few more to add in extra physics, but there's six numbers and we know what they are. And so we can extract those six numbers by simulating millions of CMVs and finding the best fit effectively. Mm-hmm. Reionization, the first galaxies, the physics is a lot messier and we don't have that simple six number characterization. Uh, we've got approximate characterizations, but rely on only a couple parameters, but how good are those characterizations? How robustly will they tell us about the actual universe? I seem to remember that the, so one of the, one of those six numbers is H, the Hubble constant. I seem to remember that the determination from that from Planck, so the CMB experiment was different to that from redshifted galaxies by a non-negligible negligible amount. Yeah. So that that's definitely a major open question in cosmology right now is, is this tension between the Hubble constant coming from the CMB and galaxy surveys real. It's getting to the point where it's statistically significant. So 21 centimeter cosmology probably won't constrain the Hubble constant directly, but as it turns out, the reionization history of the universe is a major nuisance parameter for the CMB. Mm-hmm. The fact that we're observing the CMB through all the ionized hydrogen gas created during reionization imparts a subtle signal in the CMB that makes all the other parameters you constrain from the CMB slightly harder to constrain. And so there's been some interesting ideas proposed that if 21-centimeter cosmology can give you that reionization history, it can help these fundamental cosmology studies in removing that unknown from the CMB analysis and helping them only have to constrain five numbers instead of six. Mm -hmm. 
That's really cool. Is there anything I haven't asked about that you could bring in your talk that you want to talk about? Um, excellent question. I'm trying to remember everything that's in my talk. Um, there's certainly a lot of up and coming results that I want to highlight in my talk. Then, uh, particularly the MWA is close to having some new results. Uh, so everything I'll be showing in the talk is preliminary. So I, I don't want to advertise too strongly, but, um, close to having some really interesting results. Uh, reanalyzing some of its old data sets with new improved analysis techniques mm-hmm. and you know, showing how far we've come in the analysis and, and learning how to do the science. And so there's definitely a note of optimism in mm. the light of these retractions that progress is still being made and, and we are still moving forward. But so you're optimistic then about the future? I guess I have to be. You know, I've been doing this for 10 years. So I hope to be doing it for a while longer. And so yeah. I, I think we'll, we'll definitely get there somewhere. But I'm also an eternal pessimist at heart, so uh, you know, have to take everything I say with a grain of salt. I think a lot of us in uh, astronomy are. <laughs> I guess one thing I, I should make sure I acknowledge, and I, I definitely do in the talk, is that these are large teams of people. Mm. Um, the Murchison-Widefield-Array collaboration is probably over 200 people now. Uh, the Hera team is something like 80 people, and so... There's a lot of efforts on a lot of different fronts going into these experiments where we're kind of past the age of a few radio astronomers setting up antennas in the desert and seeing what we can see. That, that was 10 years ago, and that was a lot of fun. But uh, these really are becoming full-fledged collaborations, mm-hmm. and so I want to make sure I acknowledge uh, the efforts of all the people who've gone into the experiments, as well as you know, all the local people who've contributed to helping build the experiments in South Africa, uh, the traditional owners of the site in Western Australia, that uh, a lot of cooks in the kitchen here. Mm. Mm. Okay, that's probably a good point to wrap up then, I guess. Okay, Thanks all so right, great. Time.